the BDXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, bringing you another special episode of our Change Makers Edition. While in the past, we've strictly interviewed researchers, academics, and PhDs in the field, we'll now also be bringing you interviews with founders, coaches, authors, and anyone else who dedicates themselves to helping us transform the way we live our relationships. Our guest on today's show is Dan Doty. Dan Doty works with men to help them access repressed areas of emotion and desire, resulting in relaxed confidence and an increased ability to connect more deeply with others. In addition to being a men's coach, Dan is also the co-founder of Everyman, a company dedicated to helping men connect and help each other to lead more successful, fulfilling lives. Dan and his work with Everyman have been featured by TEDx, The Joe Rogan Show, The Today's Show, Men's Health, and CNBC. Thanks so much for joining us today. Excited to chat with you. To start out, I kind of love to just ask people, you know, what is it in your personal life, either events or experiences uh, that may have brought you to where you are today? Do you have 30, 37 years to listen? Because that's how long it'll take me. Well, I, you know, if we put it on 2.0 speed. <laughs> right, yeah. sure. Yeah. The quick highlight reel is a childhood in the Midwest uh, with a really loving family. Uh, but both a family culture and a wider culture that uh, was really frozen emotionally. It was it was frozen literally the seven months of the year, eight months of the year. <laughs> I, I grew up in North Dakota, um, so that was that was sort of like the underlying substrata of of the mission that I've taken up. Uh, but moving past that, I I was a pretty normal functioning young guy I played football I was in heavy metal bands I, I was really into the outdoors after college I well actually an important thing that's come up more lately is is during college I started traveling the world pretty uh, intensively and that really just shattered my small view of the world and um, mm-hmm. you know really kind of opened me up to a heck of a lot more possibility than I was used to living with. Uh, but then right after right after college, I my first real career, I became a wilderness uh, therapy guide. So there's all these programs for kids who are struggling to go out on these long wilderness adventures to find themselves and learn skills. Some of them are hardcore therapeutic with clinicians and therapists and mm-hmm. others are hardcore correctional. So it's, you know, an alternative to going to juvenile detention. And I spent several years and really just found my place uh, for a couple reasons. So the the connection with nature itself was probably first and foremost, but the connection with these young men, and I work only with young men, I think out of, you know, close to 800, 900 days out in the field, I think only two of those were with young women. It's just what happened. It wasn't really chosen that way. But I became really obsessed with the mental health, the maturation process of a healthy man, really just this whole journey of, I really, honestly, I just fell in love with these kids because they were amazing and they were 
they weren't fitting into their families or society and people didn't know what to do with them. And yet I spent, you know, 24 hours a day with them and I'm like, you guys are freaking awesome. And, you know, I see, I see these sticky points that aren't working. That really was, you know, huge. I came out of that experience and I spent several years doing that with the clear, strong desire to want to do something like that in a more preventative or proactive model, not waiting until the shit hit the fan until the kid had to be sent away to get things together. But really, some I feel like I was let in on a secret of some of these basic human needs that we all have that we're not getting. And for whatever reason, the wilderness is a great place to learn those. And that really started my journey. You kind of mentioned the the role of nature in there. And it was funny, I was listening to your interview with Joe Rogan as I was snowshoeing and you guys talk a lot about nature and and it resonated so much with me and being this incredible tool that enables us to enhance and kind of tap into the connection with self but either through breaking down all the the noise around you or somehow also brings other people together and I think can cultivate connections with other people in a way that you can't necessarily replicate in other settings. Yeah, hugely. I mean, to me, nature is the sort of the end all be all, you know, it's the physiological, spiritual, emotional, just sort of baseline connections that are enhanced by being in at the natural pace of life Mm -hmm. out amongst natural settings it just subtly but firmly resets our system back to a more receptive and humble and less narcissistic and Mm -hmm. more interrelated interdependent way of being and uh, you know there's a lot of all around the world, there's different movements going on. You know, there's an earth movement, there's the tree bathing movement in Japan. And so, you know, science is, ca- science is catching up. But we all know it. We all know it on a very simple fundamental level that when we go outside and we chill out, we feel good, you know. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, just, it's also just where I've always felt the most at home and the most happy yeah. and the most peaceful. Um, and I do, I do feel like the capacity for human connection it's a great place to start, but a lot of my work and a lot of what every man has done and what I brought there and beyond, really, I think one of the big linchpins for me is that I've spent, I mean, literally thousands and thousands of days out in roadless wilderness, in the, in the deep wilderness. And I, what I found that's been really helpful and important is that what I, what I get out there myself or what I help other people get out there that same level of groundedness, of connection, of interrelatedness, all of these things, they can be simply and directly cultivated anywhere, right? Like right where you are, on a train, in the, on the subway in New York, in a car in LA, like wherever you are, once you kind of have those in your body and in your heart and in your mind, and you have that imprint, or you have somebody who can kind of guide you there. Actually, I have this, I'll tell a very short story. So I... I did that wilderness work. I then moved to New York City. I became a a high school teacher in the Bronx. That was my next chapter. Mm. And uh, had my quarter-life crisis kind of blew things up, just totally imploded as a person. And in the midst of that, I found a a meditation practice, which has been 
very central to my life. But the first time I ever went, I went to this meetup on a Sunday morning close to Union Square. And it was on like the fifth floor walk up of this building. First thing they had us do was lay down on our backs and basically relax and drop down and, and imagine ourselves connecting with the earth, with, with mm -hmm. the earth itself. And um, it was a moment of massive impact on me. I just, I started bawling. I started crying mm -hmm. and I was laying there and I recognized that because I was in the city and I was scared and I was lonely and I was lost and, and I didn't yeah. have my, didn't know what was going on. But just laying there was with a few simple instructions. I found the same feeling that I used to feel uh, in the wilderness, just laying in my sleeping bag, ready to go to sleep, that sort of grounded, connected feeling. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, this is game changer. I can find that level of, I can find that here. It was just like, whoa, what? So I need to work on finding that that elsewhere and being able to kind of tap into that mindfulness or kind of state in which your your barriers come down intentionally, not because you're caught off guard. Uh, that's yeah. something that I personally am, am working on. That's that's actually a really wonderful and clear way to say a, a state where the barriers come down intentionally. That mm -hmm. might be the best uh, description of of what we do at Every Man and what I'm what I do. Maybe that I've ever heard. I'm going to use that on my website. Thank you for that. Perfect. <laughs> I really wish I could go on an Every Man retreat. By the way. <laughs> I do well just talk to more about that later. I, I, yeah, we can talk more about that, but I, I do work with men and women, um, individually yeah. too. You mentioned in the beginning that kind of at the root before these other experiences was the realization that, or the fact that you had come from a family who perhaps was kind of frozen emotionally and absorbed that, as I think many of us do. But I think that many of us don't necessarily ever realize that's happening. And so I was wondering if you could speak a bit to, to when you actually were able to become aware of that and say, oh, I am perhaps emotionally Stinted or, or frozen, <laughs> you know, because I think I think we all, most of us, lots of people, especially I think in the United States, and it's changing. But yeah, how and when did you become aware of that? I spent my entire twenties slowly rolling toward that massive like mm -hmm. <laughs> realization. Yeah. I I do think that. Uh, you know, some of the international travel and living and the wilderness. Yeah, I mean, listen, I spent, you know, four or five years in a row basically delivering and sharing curriculum and about emotional openness. And, and, and it's interesting. At that time, I think I felt like I was all the way there, you know, and because here's what I made I, it right. What an arrogant young person. I, but but I just think that's kind of what happens. But here's the thing. I could be there for other people. At that time in my life, like I, I could totally be there for other people, be helpful, uh, be supportive. But when it came to my own self, my God, was I ignorant. Right. And it took me going to, and, the, you know, the biography here is part of it because moving to New York, I became a teacher, become, I became very overwhelmed. I worked. It was a very unhealthy lifestyle. It was just too much. And it pushed me past my edge. I had romance issues. 
the only time I ever cheated on anybody. I had this long-term relationship. I ended up cheating on my girlfriend in a, in a terrible way. And it just like, I just popped. It just popped. It's like who I thought I was isn't real. I don't know who I am. I'm doing these things that are so against who I think I am. And I just blew up, right? I had, I had like a total meltdown and, and that was, I think that was, that was the moment. That was the moment, right? That, that was the moment where it all came to a head and, and like, holy shit, I am not prepared for this life thing in the way that I thought I was. And I don't know what the hell to do. And so I, I really dove into a really, I mean, one thing I tend to, when I do things, I do them pretty all the way. And so I really dove into personal inquiry and meditative practice and men's groups and therapy and some other sort of healing modalities, plant medicine and things. I really went hard for a while, but yeah, that's what it was. It was that, it was that sort of total breakdown freak out. I think I was 27 or so. Yeah. And I think that being able to be there for others versus yourself is just, I think people think of it as kind of, Oh, V1 and V2. Yeah. And to me, there's, you know, V1 through five is maybe being there for others. And then being there for yourself is V10, if not <laughs> V100. It is just a whole other level that I, one, I hope people can realize how difficult it is, how important it is, but that even people who are doing work like this, like you and I, it's not something that is second nature, nor easy, nor, no. you know, for me, it's for sure still a very much ongoing process and will continue to be forever. I just think there's something there. There is that, I don't know what the right word for it is, but self. there's this meme in our culture about self-sacrifice for the welfare of others or putting others before you. Which I think is, you know, it's, I'm not at all saying it's wrong headed. And, and I think like in the right frame, it, you know, it's beautiful. But in, in my meditative tradition and, and lineage, there is this sort of concept that if, if you're out there helping others, leaning in to do what you think is helpful to others, but you're just a, a giant scramble inside and it's, it's all this ego projective thing of just, trying to do what you think is right is is actually potentially even harmful to other people. Um, mm. And I think that's, that's a, you know, a more extreme way of thinking. And I'm not sure that I'm totally in line with that all the way, but I do know for myself that to actually be, to really be able to love other people and really be able to show up for them all the way. It, it does, there does seem to be a very strong correlation with how uh, in alignment I am myself. Yeah, it seems to be primary. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, while it might not be damaging for others, I guess I could see how it could be damaging to oneself in the sense that, you know, you could be out there thinking, well, you know, I'm supporting everybody else. I'm helping their growth, their emotional development, asking the tough questions, really digging deep. And in that way, kind of taking the load off yourself by getting that kind of fulfillment and yeah. kind of disillusionment yeah. a bit as to the emotional journey you're on because you're living it through others rather than turning the tough questions around and asking yourself the same things and really digging deep and 
you know, being that's a that's to, a great point. Own advice. That's such a great point, and and that's you know, and if I'm skipping ahead, you can stop me and pull me back. But it's a very important element at every man that we do this collectively and peer to peer. And even our facilitators and our leadership is all participatory leadership, right? So one of the fundamental things is that when, in our case, when guys get together and go through major learnings and healings, everybody who's present gets a part of that. Everybody who's present Mm -hmm. does get. Um, So yeah, in no way do I feel like you don't have to have your shit together to help other people, right? I actually think mm. that being humble and going through your – I mean, this is sort of the whole premise of, of every man in a lot of ways is by getting together and being willing and uh, vulnerable enough to just share our, our dark stuff and our healing right in front and with and through everybody, um, it compounds the the benefit throughout the whole community that's there. So that might be a, might be a little bit paradoxical to what I said earlier, but – that I know for sure. Yeah, no, I think that I wanted to ask you kind of about the importance of having that that community and that support and creating a space where it is kind of men coming together and how that changes the dynamic, I guess, in the literal sense on kind of an individual or one instance basis, but then in the big picture as well. Totally. Yeah. Two two main things I would say about the importance of doing it collectively and doing it together. The first is that a basic underlying principle of healing and psychology and therapy and counseling of all parts is that by having a healthy human connection as you go through some of your scary memories or traumas or these parts that are uh, tender and, and not fully, you know, not fully in alignment, not fully okay, by doing that with another human in full presence is that's just one of the basic underlying principles of healing. That's how we heal one way is is that we do it with other. And there's a part here that I hold on to very tightly. uh, And importantly, is that I'm probably one of the world's biggest fans of therapy and trained counseling and trained therapy. I think it's massively helpful. It's helped me in my life countless times. But I do think that there's something that we all have for each other that we can dial up higher, which is our own presence to be there for each other in deeper and deeper ways. And so every man's basis is that, yeah, go to therapy, go do your thing, like get the specific healing you need. But Let's also show up and look how much benefit you can bring other humans by learning simply to slow down and to be present for them and to open up your emotional self and your nervous system enough that you can be with them in their dark places. So in one sense, it's a a very subtle but sort of peer-to-peer grassroots way of uh, turning everybody into an agent of of healing and growth and uh, kind of de-stigmatizing, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to a four-year degree program to be able to sit with someone while they're hurting. You can learn mm-hmm. the, the underlying principles and we can show up and, you know, I think the the large-scale problems we're facing, so, 
you know, suicide crisis, me too, global warming, whatever, whatever it is, I feel like we need rapid, <laughs> rapid dispersed healing and growth throughout uh, the human population. And I think that it would take way too long and be too expensive to train enough therapists to cover everybody. So we got to get together, learn the basics and and get after it. The degree in RDHG, rapid disbursement of healing and growth. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, it sounds kind of basically, I mean, trying to democratize therapy. And Mental health. At least the skills and the, yeah, yeah, the effects and the benefits. Emotional health, I guess, is maybe one of the simplest ways. This baseline, yeah, this baseline stance and state that we can walk around in as humans where we're open to what happens. You know, we're, we're, we, we can be present with whatever someone's feeling, whatever's happening. You know, I, I think we generally, emotions are intense. Other people's emotions are intense. Ours are intense. But it goes deeper than emotions. It's just general states, you know. It's stress. It's all these other ways of being. But if we yeah. can learn to be present and relax through them, everything changes. Yeah. And as you mentioned in the beginning, kind of with that being out in the wilderness and how it takes you back, you said to the natural pace of life. And I love that because when you really go back to kind of this, our natural states, especially in the wilderness, when you don't have your smartphone, when you don't have your computer in your, you know, bed, whatever our natural state is completely reliant on social systems and our close, you know, friends and family. And so again, that kind of, you know, trying to kind of replicate that, that natural state and that social circle that at our core is one of our biggest necessities. That's it. Well, that's, and that's, that was sort of the second thing that I kind of earmarked in terms of why we do this in groups is that, I mean, we are, as this species, you know, evolving at whatever speed you think we're evolving, our basic safety in the, in our origins relied on social communication and, and presence, right? So mm-hmm. whatever your beliefs are, w- w- you know, right. you know, way back in history, when survival was a much more present thing, what we needed to survive beyond air, water, food was each other. Actually, we needed each other to get those things. And there's been some amazing neuropsychological sort of theories and research going on about potentially our natural resting state of our mind. Our, Our brain's natural resting state is one of where is Susie? Where is John? Where is, you know, it's, it's this like, Wi-Fi that connects to the tribe or the pack or whatever animal we were, right? It is. (laughs) And that's another thing about spending so much time in the, in nature, you know, I've, I've just amazing moments when you watch animals in their natural habitat. And, you know, this is an example I've used quite a few times, but if you imagine sitting on a mountaintop, looking down at a bench or a saddle below you, and there's a herd of 300 elk. And watching them move and watching them stop and listen and like 400, 600 pound animals all in a place, they're in sync with each other to such a degree. And that's their safety mechanism. That's what keeps them okay and safe. And so we have our own version of that. And so you're right. When we're out in the woods or anywhere where we don't, 
our our outside reality doesn't match that quite as much. We don't maybe have giant birds trying to come eat us, right? But uh, we can tap into that same fundamental human wiring, and it just relaxes us to this degree that we just don't normally have an awareness of. And it it it's fundamentally altering to have that level of relaxation and safety. Yeah, I love operating definitions in terms of, you know, for me, what does safety mean? What am I interpreting out Mm. of that word when you say it versus what are you talking about? And sometimes because people can be talking about completely different things. So I'd love to know your your operating definition of, of safety. Yeah, and I'm open to changing this, but in the context that I'm using it right now, the best example that I can give you is that, so I have a a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and there is this level of let go or let down. So I'm putting one of them to sleep or one is, you know, Mm -hmm. laying on, on my shoulder, and there's this level of complete and utter relaxation there's this moment when they turn into a sack of potatoes and there's no more no more having to hold themselves up no more energy output just complete surrender yeah so that is a the best sort of visual or visceral way to describe i think the extreme end of of that where it's no guard is up zero Mm -hmm. you're completely okay yeah that need for vulnerability and trust that needs to go into that and but then the kind of reward you can get by being in that state and in your interview with I think it was with Joe Rogan you quoted someone who was in one of your men's groups saying safety is the new ayahuasca and yeah I really yeah. loved that quote yeah. especially when kind of you dig deeper into what is behind safety versus taking it as a you know, two-dimensional face value word. It's being in that state where, again, those barriers are down. That is the ultimate high. I'm going to backtrack a little. For people who maybe didn't read the description of the episode and, and what it is you do to give them a bit more context about every man, and I want to read a quote from your your TED Talk to kind of give context. Yeah. I believe that what the world needs from men today is for us to focus on two big changes. The first is to learn and accept and practice to be vulnerable. And then with that vulnerability, to create meaningful human connections around us so that we never have to be alone. And so that we can create this web of men who are there for each other and who are there for everyone else. And so leading with that, I'd love to to hear, we established a new definition earlier for every man, but kind of your goals and help people understand how you guys go about doing that. Yeah. So I want to take a second to introduce my, he's not here, I'm not introducing him alive, but uh, <laughs> one of my co-founders, Owen Marcus, is from Idaho and He's got this remarkable story. He grew up dyslexic and dyspaxic and uh, with Asperger's, which that's what it was called at the time, and had a very different experience of life than most of the people around him. And he moved to Boulder in the 70s and 
he became a rolfer, so he learned from nice. directly from I- Ida Rolf. But he also trained under a few of the uh, sort of pioneers of an emerging type of human work called somatic psychotherapy. So he worked with P- uh, Peter Levine, who created a system called somatic experiencing, and he worked with Ron Kurtz, and, and it was in their like kind of their first professional trainings of ever. And Ron Kurtz created a type of training called the Hakomi method, which are body-based somatic-oriented therapeutic processes. And so Owen began to uh, sort of bring that into his own way of working with people. And he began doing men's work. He began sitting in men's groups and leading trainings and things like that. And so over the course of 35 years or so, he really came up with the the underpinnings of this emotional and somatic way that we work with men. So he started doing men's groups in in Boulder and I imagine at that time, I mean, considering how new and on the cusp men's groups are now, I can only imagine. Totally. So that was a first big wave. There was a big wave of men's groups in the in the 60s and 70s and then the Mankind Project uh, started in the 80s. And there was a it was a huge wave of men's work in the 80s and 90s that was based in more Jungian psychology and archetypal work and things like that. And Owen was a part of that, and then began his own uh, his own process. And he started what was called the Sandpoint Men's Group in Sandpoint, Idaho, and that's been a community that's now been around for 15 years or so. And I uh, moved to that part of the world for a short period of time. And I ended up finding his men's group and sitting in it for about six months or so. And and you asked me earlier when I finally sort of realized that I was uh, <laughs> not whole. I remember the first first night I ever sat in his men's group, they would ask me these simple questions like, what are you feeling right now? And it freaked me out because I had no answer. I had I had no way to answer that. They're like, are you sad? Are you happy? Are you scared? I'm like, no clue. So Owen, through his life and experience, life experience and his professional experience and his training, came up with this very body and emotion based practice, which is truly, truly simple and truly, truly powerful. So what we do at Every Man is once we slow down, and that's really important part, we begin a process of just feeling what our truth is, and we start with our bodies because the body is a sort of a guide or a back door to know what emotions are up for us. And so we, you know, notice where we're clenched or tense or really just some very basic somatic awareness. And that leads us to a really simple baseline emotional state too. So we we learn to really feel what it is that's up for us and the third step, so once we've slowed down and we've touched in and, and felt what's going on for us, we, we open our mouths and we share it with each other. And every time I explain it, I have this moment, I'm like, it, it's so simple. It really is. It's not complicated. But this mode of being, this mode of interacting for men is a very, very uh, foreign, oftentimes completely revolutionary act. And by slowing it down and just paying attention to these, you know, fundamentals of, of who we are. So we, we asked two questions over and over. What do you feel and what do you want? And 
by being able to go right to that, to have an answer. If you can walk around life with an answer to those two questions, man, it just clarifies and clears up a lot of clutter around us. Yeah. I do think that sometimes the simplest questions can be the most complicated, like the ones you mentioned, or are you okay? I had a a moment recently where somebody asked me that, and it wasn't until that it just brought up a whole unexpected reaction on my part. And it was something that was so simple. And, you know, it's not that different from how are you, which is something we ask each other literally every day to strangers on the street. But just the wording or if you just actually sit with the question and try and answer it rather than giving your prefabricated you know, back pocket answer without thinking twice about it. It's really different. It's yeah. Yeah. Different yeah experience. Definitely. That's such a mass. Both of those questions are so massive, but another way to frame uh, what we do at every man is we practice a way of being with other people that is body and heart oriented instead of cognitive and mind oriented. And that shift begins a process of deepening relationships throughout one's life. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Bye.